the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. And we're back after a long week of watching baseball at the major league, minor league, college levels. Everything is in swing. Summer is near. And Joe Doyle is back. Jason Churchill, Joe Doyle. It's the FSS Plus podcast. Joe, in your in your absence where you were off uh, on an unauthorized vacation, by the way, because this, <laughs> I think that's all you take is unauthorized <laughs> vacation because you don't need my authorization. So you're just, it's unauthorized. Um we talked a little bit about, I, I bagged on the Chicago White Sox for like an hour. And you know what? People loved it. So uh, I'm going to make that a usual thing. If you're ever out, I'm going to pick a team to pick on. But here's what I want to do. The next time you're out, I'm going to ask you, all right, you're going to be out for the show. Which team should I pick on this week? And then you just throw a random team at me. It could be the best team in base. Pick on the Dodgers and I will find a reason to just bag on them for like 45 minutes. I like that. Yeah. Anybody that... uh Anybody in the industry that I talk to that slights me just even once, <laughs> I'll just blacklist them through church. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Absolutely. I would just rip them to shreds. That's what we do. I like here. that. Uh, That's leverage. Here's what we're going to talk about this week. You have a mock draft out that just popped on uh, on Wednesday. I and do. so we're going to go through that a little bit because it's a really interesting, uh, I don't want to say change at the top, although technically it is from your first mock. Um, because I think people expect the top two picks to be pretty much consensus across the board. And you introduced a scenario, potential scenario that, that generates some discussion. So we're going to get to that. Then we're going to do a live mock where I'm going to throw a, another wrench into it all really, really high in the draft. And, and we'll riff off that a little bit. And then later in the show, uh, I want to get your take Joe on, uh, on who flinches first from a contender standpoint, and a non-contender seller at the deadline standpoint when it comes to trades. I know fans love to talk trades. Uh, I think it's going to be a big summer for trades, but I think there are going to be fewer trades and bigger names moved this summer, and I'll explain why as we get closer to the deadline. But, uh, you know, that by the way, those Chicago White Sox that I spent an hour last week ripping on might be one of those teams that flinch and say, screw it, we need to start over. Let's start trading dudes. Uh, but I'll get your take on that a little later in the show. But let's talk about your mock draft. Well, um, first, uh, before we dig into every pick, at least the top 10, we'll go through the top 10. Uh, any thought at the top of Dylan Cruz not being the pick by the Pirates? I'm not hearing anything like that, but you're a little closer to this than I am. Is there any... Todd, the closest thing I've heard to Dylan Cruz not going number one is the Nationals trying to do everything they possibly can to talk the Pirates out of it and to talk Dylan Cruz from not talking to the to the Pirates, which doesn't seem like there's much of a chance that happens. I I mean I would I would still be stunned. Uh, Pittsburgh, you know, they they did the whole money games thing with Henry Davis in 2021, mm -hmm. but there was not a consensus top player in that draft. I mean, most people would say it was actually kind of a a weaker draft. Uh, especially on the college side. So uh, I'm not hearing anything that anyone except Dylan Cruz is going to go first overall. I think there are some scenarios where Wyatt Lankford is willing to take a big haircut and Pirates would like to kind of flex their bonus pool a little bit. But 
I, you know, at the end of the day, man, the, the MLB draft is a money game. Like it, money in this draft, money in every draft might be more important than the talent that is involved in it. So there's a long ways to go until the draft. I still think some things can happen. But as of today, I just think you'd be silly to bet against Cruz. Yeah, what's interesting is in, in a, uh, the Cleveland scouting director years ago told me, and I've repeated this a thousand times, but it still rings in my head every time I think about the bonus pool. And I don't really love the fact that we have bonus pools, but he said, hey, the draft is different now than it was prior to 2011, I think was the first year. It used to just be able to take best player on the board. And whatever that guy's number was, was the number he came up with. And now it's not quite as easy, but you have to keep one eye on your player board and one eye on your money. Uh, because the guy on your player board, if he's number one, but he's 10 on your money board because of the money you have available, if you're the Texas Rangers, for example, you can't just take the best player every single round. You got to move that around. So it's really interesting. So Dylan Cruz won. You do have Dylan Cruz one in your mock. And then at number two, I think right now, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong. The expectation, if there was one, at least from the public, from, from analysts, from other outlets, is that the Washington Nationals are going to take LSU right-hander Paul Skeens with the number two pick. But in this particular scenario, and that's what mock drafts are, let's present some potential scenarios. You have Walker Jenkins, the South Brunswick outfielder, going two to the Nationals, and this pushes Skeens and Wyatt Langford, uh, uh, maybe some other guys down the list, you know, one or two spots. Uh, this is really interesting. So what went into putting Jenkins, attaching Jenkins to uh, to the Nationals at uh, at number two here? Well, I, you know, this is this is an industry and rumor mock draft. And it's basically what's what is the latest thing? What is the most interesting thing that I have been hearing? I have been seeing um, inside of, you know, team circles, league circles and I mean, the Nationals have been out heavy-handed to see Walker Jenkins. There's been multiple folks from different levels of scouting and player development um, out to see him. They're obviously doing their due diligence. Now, Jason, I have so many Nationals fans so angry at me right now. I have had so many Nationals fans in my mentions this week lambasting me for you know, making this pick but at the end of the day like it's just a mock draft and i'm not saying this is what's going to happen but i am saying this is this is a scenario that could happen um do i think paul Skeens makes more sense for the washington nationals who currently have like nine outfielders in their top 20 prospects yes i, I do but that's not the way that drafts work i mean teams decide who they think the best player available is they take that information and kind of combine it, like we said, with with the money games, and they make the pick from there. All I'm saying is, at this point, the Nationals are heavily connected to Walker Jenkins. They are heavily considering Walker Jenkins. I think you and I would both agree the Nationals are not, you know, two years away or even a year and a half away from competing. So I think they can have a little bit of, you know, uh, diligence with with what age range they want to pick. But I would ask you this as kind of a supplement to your question. If you were a scouting director or you were a general manager, maybe specifically the Nationals who don't have a very good team right now, but they do have a strong farm system that only figures to get stronger. Are you of the mindset you take the best player available 
or do you take the quantity approach? Do you, or, I mean, basically, would you go quality and just take skeins for full slot? Or would you dabble with quantity and maybe move some money around and get a better player in the third round, for example? Yeah, so I would just take the best player on my board at this point, even if he cost a little more than slot at number two. And I would take Wyatt Langford, clearly. I mean, that, that to me, if Dylan Cruz is off the board, Wyatt Langford's my pick. Even if I'm the Nationals, even though I'm three years away from winning, I want the best player with the less risk. And I think I get both in in Langford. Uh, Skeens yeah. is like, and we've talked about this a little bit. Skeens, like, I, I love him. Like, what's not to like, right? And it could be, you know, who knows? Maybe he's Justin Verlander. But it's a lot easier to find, you know, really good arms in the draft um, outside the top 10. It's a lot harder to find quick to the big leagues bats. Uh, and when you go out on the market, um, you're, you know, who you look at, look, look what happened this past, uh, this past winter, we, we saw Xander Bogarts and Trey Turner and guys like $300 million. So if you're, you're trying to spend on bats, it's going to cost you $300 million in investment. There's a lot of risk to that. No matter what you do to the AAV with an extended contract, 11 years, 12 years, whatever, there's a ton of risk in that. The pitchers these days, even elite pitchers are not getting those kinds of deals. So I can go out on the market and spend 80 million for three years or 120 million for three or four years to get an elite guy in the prime of his career. But I can't do that with a hitter. It's going to cost me 10, 12 years. So as I'm building a team and I'm thinking about the process, I want to mix risk and the player that I think I'm getting, the upside that I think I'm getting. And that's why I would just take Langford there. If you're a club that thinks Langford is slightly above average instead of a plus to plus plus player, great. But everything I'm hearing and seeing is he has a chance to play some center field early in his career, a better chance to do that than Dylan Cruz. And he's probably just a half tick off offensively, at least in the power department. And he's relatively close in the hit tool department. That's a really good player. And even yeah. if I only get three years of average center field out of him, I mean, that's a player I want in my organization. Because what can you do, Joe? Like, you get a okay, I'm not ready to win, and Langford is ready next year already. Like, how does that hurt you? Not at all. Like, it doesn't hurt you. You don't need all this to line up, like, perfect, right? You're just no. trying to get the best players. And you can do a lot of things getting a guy to the big leagues before your team is ready. I mean, you can, you can trade him. Uh, Let me add in one other thing. It, it doesn't matter. The Nationals fans should understand it doesn't matter if you have nine outfielders in your top prospect lists. You got James Wood, you got Robert Hassel. Those two look like they're going to be good players. Mm -hmm. I will give you that. Elijah Green, are we sure he's a big leaguer? This isn't me. You can't be, right? Crushing him. You can't be sure. You can't but, be sure. But if you and wake then, up in four years and all four of those guys are above average to plus big leaguers, is it a problem? Absolutely. Are you, are you not. wishing when you're you could just go trade one of them for a pitcher, right? That's like, what I'm that's saying. When you're competing, let's say 2025 is here. It's July 2025. You're having a better year than you thought. You want to have the best players in your farm system available regardless of position so you can make the trades and the deals necessary to go win a championship. Listen, the Washington Nationals are not going to have the problem of how are we going to fit eight awesome big league outfielders into this lineup oh the mistakes we made in 2023 that's not going to happen like if you're lucky if the nationals are lucky james wood and robert hassel will be good big leaguers and one of the other seven will turn into a big leaguer so you just i think you just take the best player available if that's langford great you've got an even better shot of having three big league quality outfielders in your future. And then all of those other guys you can trade. I, I look back 
now I'm going getting on my soapbox. I, I look back at, at the Mariners in 2021 when they weren't competitive yet. They were, you know, kind of still in the midst of that rebuild. And they had Mitch Haniger and Jared Kelnick and Kyle Lewis, Taylor Trammell and Julio Rodriguez. And I mean, the list just goes on and on. Zach Deloach, um, who was the uh, Jonathan Classe? Like all of these guys were in their top 15. I've just named off like seven guys. Mm-hmm. There was a point at the end of 2022 where all of those guys were up, every one of them, all seven of them. And still, Seattle couldn't field a big league outfielder, a big league left field. Mm-hmm. So they still had shortcomings because they, you can't, because they they're not all going to work. Short. Right. Right. So just draft the best player available and figure it out later. And if you do have the luxury of having a surplus, go trade for an arm. Go trade for a third baseman. Like, there are ways around it. Yeah, I think Seattle right now would love to have a surplus bat in their system right now. <laughs> so they can push him yeah. to the big leagues. Not even like they it, traded one. Right. You know? Yeah, because yeah. they really didn't. Uh so Jenkins at two is where you have that now. That could go in a couple of different uh directions. We do know Mike Rizzo's track record. Uh you know, he kind of made his name as a scouting director before he became a general manager. His track record is uh, the big name SEC, ACC type, uh, you know, college arms uh, that throw gas and, and can miss bats. But he also loves upside. So Jenkins certainly fits uh, in that second bucket here. Uh, number three, you have Lankford going to, uh, uh, to Detroit. To me, like if I'm Detroit and Washington doesn't take and cruises off the board and Washington doesn't take Lankford. I'm giddy here if I'm Detroit because what are the thing? What's what are they missing? Healthy, consistent performers. They're still hoping Riley Green, you know, turns it up a notch, but he's been okay. Torkelson, we'll see what happens there. He struggled early. Javier Baez, free agent signing, hasn't really done much. Like that team offensively is terrible, and a guy like Lankford could get it, get to the big leagues inside of two years. Maybe when their pitching starts to come along, they start to get guys healthy again. Uh, and everybody but Rodriguez uh, there, who was a free agent signing, has really struggled. Matt Manning's been hurt. Casey Mize's been hurt. Maybe to get some of those guys back, develop a couple of other young guys to get to the big leagues about the time that Lankford arrives and uh, and provides some more offense there for him. Because it looks like even though maybe two years ago was the first year we thought maybe the Tigers are going to start crawling out of this rebuild, but they're still looking to do that. It hasn't happened yet. I think like uh, a guy like Lankford could help them do that in a year or two. Yeah, this is going to be one of the more interesting picks for me. I, I haven't heard the team necessarily connected to anyone, and I, I think we're so far out that it doesn't really matter. But I think the pick is going to be a bit indicative of where Scott Harris thinks his player development program is. Because whether it's pitching, whether it's bats, Detroit has struggled to mm-hmm. develop either of them. And we're talking high picks. Riley Green has been pretty good. Spencer Torkelson has really struggled. All you know, They, they had that four-headed monster of, Casey Mize and Matt Manning and Tariq School, like they had all of those guys. Uh, All of them have struggled in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, I I think it'll be interesting that, you know, if Langford is gone and Cruz is gone and you're Scott Harris, do you take Paul Skeens, who Detroit has struggled, like I said, they've struggled to develop pitching, or do you just say, you know, let's just, you know, let's take the best player available on our board. Let's take Walker Jenkins. You know, we think that guy's going to hit. We believe in that kid. I know he's a high schooler. I know Detroit fans don't want to see a high schooler, but maybe this is the best route. And I, I would I would even throw this in there, man. Like, if Cruz and Langford are gone, it wouldn't stun me to see another college bat continue to move up, like a Kyle Teal or a Jacob Gonzalez here. 
I think this is where the draft could get really hairy really, really quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just, like you said, I think the value of the starting pitching prospect is at least fuzzy right now. Yeah, it certainly is. And that, that goes for the pro level and uh, when it comes totally. to the draft. So uh, really quick, before we get to number four, uh, the Texas Rangers at four. Uh, if Cruz and let's say Skeens goes number two, uh, or or Jenkins goes number two to the Nationals. How far does Lank uh, d- does Wyatt Lankford fall? Like, if Detroit doesn't take him at three, does that just make it obvious and easy for the Texas Rangers at four? Or do you still think they might be able to make a money play there to kind of spread things out a little bit? Because Texas, despite the fact that they have the the fourth pick, they don't rank in the top five or ten in uh, in available bonus pool money. No, they don't even talk. They don't even rank in the top fifteen. I mean, they they really don't have. They don't have a second round pick. They don't have a third round pick. Um, and they've already, you know, done the money game song and dance, uh, in 2022. So this is, these are precedented waters for Texas. Like I, uh, I, I think I'll say this. I, I think the Rangers are in such a, um, forced competitive window right now. You know, maybe they've only got three or four, uh, competitive years with, with some of the big money deals that they've got. I mean, I would think that if Langford is there, you kind of look at that as oh, this is a guy that could move quick. He could be up in September of 2024, maybe early 2025, and supplement this 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 team quickly. You know, maybe he replaces Adolis Garcia uh, in 2025 when controllability becomes a concern. So, no, I mean, I I can't see Langford falling out of the top five, but Texas is in a really uh, fortuitous position. They can be pretty uh, creative here at four. Yeah, so at four in this particular mock, again, this is the rumors edition of the mock draft. You have Kyle Teal going to Virginia. Now, um, this isn't out. This isn't an uncommon uh, thought process here with with Kyle Teal. He's he's moved up. He's performed. People think he's going to be able to catch. Uh, there's some power there. There's hit tool there. There's athleticism there. He's a pretty unique uh, prospect. Is this the the ceiling for Teal, or do you think like? If if Detroit or even Washington decides to play money, that maybe Teal could go three or two. I definitely think the idea of him going three is possible. I, I I would be with with as steadfast as the top three players are on this board, and with kind of Mike Rizzo's background of either one taking the most upside that falls into his lap, like Brady House. Uh, and Elijah Green, or two, taking the big conference pitcher. Like, I think he's going to get either one of those scenarios to fall into his lap. So probably not two. Um, but yeah, I just, I you know, you kind of spelled it out perfectly. Like, Kyle Teal is a very, very unique player in this draft. How often can you find a guy that has the potential to, you know, may, do we think this kid couldn't do 2020? Like, he could be a 2020 guy and be a solid average catcher behind the plate. And then you're talking about a five-win player. So when you look at that and you compare that to like a uh, like a Wyatt Langford, who's going to be in a corner, you know, uh, it's a lot easier for, and I've said this publicly, it's a lot easier for Kyle Teal to become a five-win player than it is for a guy like Langford to become a five-win player. You're essentially asking for 2021 Tyler O'Neill to find a five-win corner outfielder. Th- mm-hmm. Those performances are rare. Kyle Teal doesn't have to do that. Right. You can play behind the plate. You can do a lot of things. And it's a left-handed bat, which is really totally. cool to have up the middle somewhere, second base, shortstop, and certainly uh, certainly at uh, at catcher. Now, a couple of things on Teal real quick. Give me the percentage chances he sticks behind the plate. And 
uh, I'm just going to remind you the conversation we had before we hit the big red record button. We were talking about uh, catchers that had speed. We were talking about Jason Kendall and Yvonne Rodriguez and guys of that nature, Russell Martin and Kyle Teal falls into that category. I just think it's kind of weird that we didn't plan on this, but we were talking yeah. about that before, <laughs> before the show. And Kyle Teal is right there at number four in your mock draft. So start with the uh, the catcher spot. What are his chances to stick there? What's the uh, the general consensus there? I think it's gone up. So I think the the camp was a bit split going into the college football or college, college baseball season. I think it was more of a 50-50 type of a thing. Mm-hmm. I think most people are in the camp that he's going to catch now. The throwing arm has gotten a little bit better and the athletic the athleticism is still so unbelievably apparent that uh, I think he's in a good place. That being said, like blocking and, and, and the hands need to improve a little bit, but some of the fundamental pillars are there for Kyle Teal to catch. Kind of adding in on your point, like I think you can count the amount of catchers that hit a hundred home runs and stole a hundred bases on one hand, mm-hmm. right? Like we talked about, like Kendall, Martin, uh, who's the one I'm forgetting? Pudge Rodriguez. Pudge, yeah. So that's three. I, I would. And Kendall actually came up short. He he just hit the 75 home runs because he was a guy who never struck out. Oh but, right. So there was yeah. So we rare. only had two. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think. Uh, I think when you're talking about a guy that could go 100, 100 and be just a solid average defender behind the plate, you know, you never want to throw this label on a kid early, but it's the type of skill set that can take you to heights that not a lot of guys in their big league careers have achieved. I'm sure Real Muto's at 100, 100, but uh, yeah, it's a very, very short list. He's actually 15 stolen bases short, so he probably gets there at some point next season. Uh, just looking at uh, how many bases he tends to steal, he's at seven this year, so he's 15 away. It's outside chance he gets there now, but it's still rare to get that combination to get a really athletic catcher who keeps enough of his speed to actually use it on the bases to go with that kind of power. So, um, yeah, we yeah. just came up and with three, about- and that's covering 30 years of baseball right there. So it's pretty rare. Yeah, and the thing, the thing that. I think excites a lot of guys about Teal is the polish at the plate is is it's there. Mm-hmm. Like he's staying in the zone, he's not chasing, he's hitting everything in the zone, he's hitting for power. Uh, this isn't like this isn't the fast catcher that you know has huge bat speed and you kind of hope that it all clicks. Like it's all kind of clicking for Kyle Teal right now, and I think that's forcing a lot of people to have the conversation of if we're looking for a unique prospect, a unique profile that can turn around a lineup can turn around an organization. You know, Kyle Teal is probably a lot harder to find than Wyatt Langford. Yeah, it seems like if if clubs are convinced Kyle Teal is at least your number one catcher, whether he catches 120 games a year or not, probably really isn't isn't all that important. It isn't as important as it used to be anyway, because you can play him at DH a little bit, you know, even if you're in the National League these days. Um, teams tend to plan for that a little bit better and stop worrying about, hey, my my backup catcher started at DH today. The, the advantage of keeping a bat in the lineup is too great. Yeah, what a, what a fascinating prospect in Kyle, too. Because when the year started, it was like oh, probably a first rounder, but you didn't really know. And now we're talking about him in the top five. Pretty crazy. Um, Minnesota Twins at five. You have This is where Skeens landed in your, in your rumors. Um, uh, addition to the mock draft. Is this the floor for Paul Skeens? Is there any chance he gets past the twins barring him asking for $15 million or something? Yeah. I mean, aside from him getting injured, right. I, mm-hmm. This is the, I'm trying to stay away from the superlatives, but like performance based, like this is the best college pitcher that we've seen in 20 years. It, the numbers are gaudy. He's like shattering every record from the last 20 years. He's posting 
massive innings totals. Uh, the stuff isn't dropping. It's only getting better. I, I just, you know, it's hard to imagine him getting past Minnesota. Um, so yeah, but I don't know. Like, what do you, what, what's your thoughts on Paul's game? What's first of all, let me just ask you this because we kind of tickled this a little bit, but the, the dilution of starting pitching at the big league level, if you, unless you think he's a 230 inning horse, which he might be, mm-hmm. what, where are you at philosophically on taking a pitcher this early? Yeah, I think I would, uh, especially at five. Like it's, it's a little different for me if I'm, you know, if, if I'm the pirates or the nationals, but it's more because who's on, who else is on the board? Like if you told me Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford weren't in this class, if I'm the pirates, I strongly consider taking Paul Skeens. I strongly consider taking Kyle Teal. Uh, if Langford and, and Cruz aren't in this class, um, because it, it, cause it's not really, I'm not as worried about a guy like Paul Skeens performing. I don't know that he's going to be an ace or number one. Is he the next Justin Verlander or is he more somewhere, you know, you know, just below that? Is he, uh, is he, you know, early career Aaron Nola? Is he, uh, is he Kluber? Is he, yeah. Is he Corey Kluber? Is he, does he peak and then go away? Does he, is it Walker Bueller where, you know, he teases and teases, has a couple of good years, and then we're just not really sure what's going to happen because he got hurt. That's pitching in major league baseball these days. And I think I would have a general philosophy of he has to be really special for me to take him really high. And it really just depends on who else is on the board. If I'm Minnesota in this situation, Teal is off the board, Lankford's off the board, Jenkins is off the board, Cruz is off the board. To me, this is a no-brainer. I'm taking Paul Skeens here. There's nobody else in this. Even if somebody said, even if a guy like, oh, I don't know, let's say Noble Meyer, the the, the Jesuit right-hander, was willing to take you know number eight money to be my number five, I'm still taking Paul Skeens. I'm not – like my team right now – in Minnesota is the best team in the American League Central. Skeens can be in my rotation by next summer, maybe even before then. I'm not taking any chances on a high school kid at this point. I can win and do some damage in the American League if I put Paul Skeens at the top of my rotation with what Sonny Gray is doing this year and uh, and some other things that are going on in Minnesota pitching-wise, one of the better pitching staffs in the American League. I take Skeens here in this particular scenario. But again, if you told me Kyle Teal was available, I'd probably take Teal at five. Uh, right. So I, mean, I would take him. Just, yeah, it's just like like Langford and Cruz seem to be pretty special, and Kyle Teal is so unique. But other than that, I think it's by, by far you remove those three guys from the equation, and Skeens is the guy. He might be one one if Langford and Cruz weren't in this draft. Yeah, yeah, you know, you kind of look at what the Twins have been able to do for so many years without a legit top of the rotation guy, and they finally have that early on here in 2023 with Sonny Gray. You just kind of look at it like Jose Barrios was never a one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he was maybe a two, maybe a low two. He had some flashes. What Sonny Gray is doing right now is is one stuff. If you could combine, if you could put Paul Skeens with that, suddenly you, you should think Minnesota has a massive advantage in the AL Central by having two guys that are more than likely going to beat whoever you throw out there on any given night if you're an AL Central team. And that could push Pablo Lopez to three, Joe Ryan to four. I mean, that's a good rotation. Yeah, we talk about how teams get advantages. It's not just at the top, but when you have aces at the top, like the Astros did with Verlander and Cole, they pushed their third best starter, whoever it was at the time. Uh, Even if he was a number two, he was pitching a number three spot or the number four spot. Uh, And the, the Twins could have a scenario like that. Lopez, Ryan, Sonny Grano, Gray, What's he have one year left uh, on his deal? 
that might be another reason why the Twins take Paul Skeens mm-hmm. because Sonny Gray has only signed through this season. You know, you're yeah. going to bring him back at uh, at 33, 34 years old. Maybe, maybe not. Um, this may be Pablo Lopez, Joe Ryan, and Paul Skeens in the future. Let's be clear. Paul Skeens could pitch for the Twins in 2024. Yeah. I mean, I mean know, he's, he's how throwing, bad would he be I, if he made a start for the Twins tomorrow? <laughs> well, I mean, if the guy was walking the world and he had huge stuff, then I'd be like, just let him figure the changeup out and throw strikes and repeat, right. right? He's not walking anybody. He's not walking anybody. He's striking or, everybody or out. The stuff hasn't declined. and two-thirds innings, yeah. Yeah, to I mean, me, he, the most he impressive get, thing is he's going six innings a start pretty consistently, I know, and sometimes the, seven he, and eight. He probably won't pitch a single inning after he gets drafted sure. for good reason, but he'll probably start 2024. I mean, I would think he starts it at double A. Mm-hmm. You know, that was going to be what was going to happen with Kamar Rocker, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it didn't happen with the Mets, but um, it's, it's just, it's so advanced. The strikes are there, the stuff is there. I would imagine he starts 2024 at double A, and it wouldn't stun me at all if he's a big leaguer by june right that's fun if i'm the twins this is a scenario where i'm jumping for joy if i'm the twins all right moving along here uh the a's at six obviously in a big time rebuild there's some really interesting names in that system now from some uh some trades they made there's a couple of really interesting young players on the big league roster ruiz story ruiz is uh certainly one of them you have him taking jacob wilson the shortstop at a grand canyon now this is a scenario where i kind of expected to be honest with you I expected Max Clark to be here at six, considering the first mm-hmm. five picks. But this is a rumor-based uh, mock draft. So tell me about Jacob Wilson and his connection to the A's here. I, I don't have any connection between uh, between Jacob Wilson and and the Athletics. I will say that he. I, I just get the feeling Jacob Wilson is going to go higher than a lot of people think. And the Athletics have a they have an old school, traditional, conventional scouting model where they really value a guy that can hit. They look at the projection. They look at the body. Um, I I think Jacob Wilson kind of falls in line with a lot of things that Oakland has done in the past. Now, my whole thing, my whole question right now is, you know, Oakland, Oakland is not going to be a good baseball team until at least 2026. I, I mean, you would probably agree with that. Yeah. They're not good right now, and the farm system isn't particularly strong either. We're not talking about a farm system that looks like the Nationals, for example. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I don't know where they're going to go with this pick, uh, Jason, to be honest with you. I think Max Clark makes a lot of sense. I think he he he's a culture setter. Um, he plays with a chip on his shoulder. He would kind of kind of plays like a, that one year that Johnny Damon was in Oakland. Like, that's the type of player that you're getting. Mm-hmm. But this is as much a guess as it is, uh, you know, a- anything educated. Does he remind you of anyone? Like he's he's, he's a bigger shortstop, 6'3", 190, 195. He's a right right kid. Um, just turned twenty one in March. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, amazingly, and that's a that's a testament to Jason Kendall's uh, athletic ability. He even played a, a little bit of second base and third base in his career because they were trying to take advantage of his of his feet. But does he remind you of another middle infielder, another shortstop? Um, you know, because it, it sounds like he has the skills to stay there, at least for a while. <laughs> this is going to date me, man. But baseball has moved so far away from the Jason Wilson or Jacob Wilson that he he doesn't remind me of anyone. I mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to throw this name out there. This person's a Hall of Famer. I'm not comparing him to this person. But like he's kind of got the Cal Ripken Jr. like starter kit, you know, makes a ton mm-hmm. of contact. Uses the whole field, big body, 
big body shortstop who's only going to get bigger. He can shift to third base as he uh, as he gets older because it's not spectacular at shortstop. The hit tool is immaculate. Like that's the type of guy from the '90s that I think of. But you would be extremely hard pressed to find anyone in the last 15 years that had the pure bat to ball skills that Jacob Wilson has shown at at, at Grand Canyon. So. No, I mean, to answer your question, he really right. doesn't remind me of anyone, but I think that's what makes the floor so uh, intriguing for someone like me. Yeah, if you're looking for 6'3", 200-pound-ish shortstops, you got to go back to guys like Ian Desmond and and uh, and Yunel Escobar uh, and Troy Tulowitzki, and that's going back 10-plus years. So when you have to go back a decade – to find that you're right. It's, it's baseball's kind of left the Jacob Wilson's, you know, behind a little bit. So, uh, really interesting there. So, uh, you know, we talk about ceiling, we talk about floor, this might be just an opportunity for the ACE to get a good quality, uh, relatively high probability player in their system, along with all the other upside they've been chasing the last year or so. Yeah, I I think so. And I I think there's something to be said about floor too. I think everyone chases Mm -hmm. the ceiling. Uh, but if you, just kind of know that you're going to have a 285 hitter who's going to play shortstop and uh, be that guy that has 80 grade makeup off the field, kind of a clubhouse leader. There's a lot of value in that too. And and I don't think, you know, everyone gets hung up on the fact that Jacob Wilson doesn't hit the ball hard, yada, yada, yada. I I actually disagree with that. I think he does kind of project to hit the ball quite a bit harder as he ages. Uh, and, And drafting that over a guy that, you know, over a high schooler like Max Clark, um, it might pay dividends long-term. The mm-hmm. The biggest question with Oakland right now, though, unfortunately, the narrative, unfortunately, is where are they going to be playing baseball and what does ownership really care about uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the draft? Because I think they're going to have more say than, uh, than most teams. Right. My fear is that the A's go cheap at six and dip way down the board and, and, and take a... Uh, you know, somebody who probably doesn't belong in the top 10, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Walker Martin, a Braden Taylor, uh, a Hurston Wald, somebody like that. Uh, you know, not that I don't like those players, but uh, leaving talent on the board is one of the biggest mistakes teams do yeah. in the draft. You mentioned Max Clark. You have him going seven to the Reds. I want to talk about seven and eight kind of in tandem. You have uh, Jacob Gonzalez, the shortstop out of Old Miss, going to the Royals at eight. Max Clark, seven to the uh, to the Reds. Um, is there any specific connection here with those two teams or is this just kind of a full, uh, a philosophical kind of a situation? The Reds are obviously building long-term the kind of where the A's are, but probably with more talent in their system, uh, and at the big league level, maybe a little bit closer to winning or actually at least having a chance to win. And that seems to be the same case for the Royals. You have the Royals taking Jacob Gonzalez, a shortstop, Joe, what are we doing here? They already have Bobby Witt jr. Why would they take a shortstop? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, Jacob Gonzalez for me isn't a shortstop. Uh, and and the options that they have on the dirt right now, Michael Garcia and Caden Wallace aren't, you know, Caden Wallace might be a right fielder or a first baseman. I, I don't think the the Royals are particularly deep right now in terms of uh, position player prospects. So I don't have anything on the Royals. I don't have anything on the Reds, but the Reds did like to... Uh, they did like Cam Collier last year. They they went for the younger, high upside play there with the hit tool. And I, there's similarities there with Max Clark. And frankly, when you do a mock draft, a lot of times it, it's just kind of one of those, 
wow, look how far this guy fell. There's no way I can get him past seven, right? Like he has to go seven. So right. um, I just didn't ask you if, Matt, if that's the there. floor for Max Clark. And it, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I've said this before, like high school talents can be kind of polarizing because you know, there's, you know, different things to weigh and, and everything, but I haven't talked to anyone that thinks Max Clark is anything less than a top five or six player in this class. And I don't expect him to fall very much further than this. Uh, so Gonzalez at eight, uh, you have Rhett Louder, the righty out of Wake Forest going nine and Noble Meyer going 10, the high school kid, uh, Jesuit high school going to the Marlins, which is entirely Miami Marlins. Uh, let, let's, uh, let, let's be honest. Uh, that's something they do. The interesting thing here is where you have Chase Dolander, uh, the Tennessee kid who had a chance at the beginning of the year, there was a little bit of one, one buzz with Dolander. So rather than going too deep on Louder and Meyer here at nine and 10, Tell us about what's happened with uh, with Dolander uh, this year at Tennessee. Obviously, he has the velocity, the, the raw stuff is there. What's happened to him that's pushed him down? You know, because it sounds like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, anywhere in that range is is legitimate. You have him going twelve in this uh, in the rumor addition to uh, to Arizona. Tell us about uh, about Dolander here. It's, you know, it's interesting, man. I think everyone has just been sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting. When is it going to click? Like, when is he going to take off? When is he going to dominate? And it's just been the same thing all year. Like, he hasn't been bad by any means. But he's just consistently given up three earned runs, four earned runs, three earned runs, six earned runs, three earned runs. And the walks have started to mount a little bit. By my count here, he's got eight starts in a row. With at least two walks, half of those he had three walks. It's still a it's still a, a dynamic elite arm. Ninety four strikeouts and sixty eight innings, but he's just he has not had a staple performance. I mean, he he kind of kicked Gonzaga's ass, but in terms of the SEC, he's just kind of you know kicked the kicked the can down the road a little bit. It's been okay, mm-hmm. and so I think everyone's just waiting for it to waiting for it to improve. And this stuff isn't it isn't so far off metrically from what we saw last year for, you know, this giant proclamation to make sense. So the more I talk to people, the more it kind of seems Rhett Louder has, has closed the gap there. And um, yeah, I, I just, I had a hard time finding a spot that Chase Dolander lands. And I think if you're the Diamondbacks, you got to be absolutely thrilled with, with him being here on the board at 12. Boy, Brent Strom is in Arizona. Do people know about Brent Strom yet, Joe? Because I think the people around baseball uh, know about Brent Strom. Uh, spent uh, spent a lot of time in Houston uh, and was a major key cog in that pitching staff, uh, turning out the Christian Javier's and the Framber Valdez's and maxing out Garrett Cole after the trade and keeping Verlander at the very top of his game, Luis Garcia, Lance McCullers. Um you know, Hunter Brown still uh, reaping some rewards from Brent Strom. Now he's in Arizona, and look what uh, Kelly and and Zach Gallon are doing. They're hitting the peaks of their careers and actually performing the way people thought they could uh, once they hit the big leagues. Uh, it's not an accident. And getting uh, getting Dolander there uh, in Arizona a little scary. Like if I'm the Dodgers, I'm like, hmm, all right, the Diamondbacks have something really going here. And if they get some more pitching, they're going to be really dangerous. That's a really interesting pick there at twelve. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing why the Angels would pass over Chase Dolander, but you know they went with Zach Neto last year. They reached for upside. They reached for just ceiling. So I think the Bryce Eldridge 
pick at 11 makes a lot of sense just with how they've handled Otani and how they've made it work. Uh, but yeah, listen, Chase Dolander still has a handful of starts left in his season. And we saw what a handful of starts could do for a guy like Cade Horton last mm, year. Yep. It wouldn't surprise me if Dolander quite literally kicks open the door as a top five, top six pick in this draft. But he's got to turn it on at some point. The stuff is still there. He's still 94 to 96 every single night. The mm. slider hasn't been quite as effective, but we know it's in there. He's healthy. Uh, now I think a teams, teams just want to see him put it all together. Yeah. All right. So that's the top 10. We even went to 11, uh, 12. You want to check out the mock draft. Uh, it is the uh, the top story at futurestarseries.com. Just click into that and check out the rumors edition of the mock draft from uh, from Joe Doyle. Now, I, I want to do one thing, you know, kind of live here. I'm going to throw like Dylan Cruz at one. I'm going to throw a completely different player in here at number two. And I'm more interested in what this would do to the rest of the draft. But if you're the Nationals, you do have money in this draft. So you can just take the best player available. But what if the Nationals or even the Tigers not just go for a Kyle Teal? What if this is where a kid like Chase Davis goes at under slot? What kind of impact does that have? Let's say he goes three to Detroit or two to Washington. It doesn't really matter. What does that do to the rest of the top 10? And what does that do? Let's assign him to Detroit. What does that do for the rest of Detroit's draft? Like the scenarios there that you can kind of build just by thinking about, all right, they're going to save a million bucks here, a million five, taking a kid who probably belonged at 15 or 13 or 20 at number three and what they can do the rest of their draft. Tell me about Detroit in this particular situation. Instead of taking Wyatt Langford in this scenario, or instead of taking Paul Skeens at three, or instead of taking uh, Kyle Teal or Walker Jenkins, they went Chase Davis, who's trending up, but probably not a guy that belongs anywhere near the top five on anyone's draft board. I'll speak just more macro, just because I think this is how the draft is going to end up anyways. The top 10, like if you look at what my top 10 is right now, Skeens, Jenkins, Clark, Teal, Wilson, Gonzalez, Lankford, Cruz, Dolander. I bet you I put good money that only six of those go in the top 10, maybe mm. even five. The MLB draft is always chaos. I mean, in 2021, maybe it was 2020 now, it's been a while, when uh, Heston Kerstad went two overall. Chaos. It was chaos. The rest of the top 10 went all over the place. Uh, last year, when Frank, this might have been 2021 too, I'm getting my years mixed up. When Frank Mazzucato went seven mm. to the Royals, he was widely regarded a second round type of guy right but they went frank mazzucato and their draft exploded because of it they got so many good players out of that you know the pirates going under slot with henry davis at number one they got so much talent because of that i think there's going to have to be a team in the top five who just doesn't have a you know a consensus this guy is so much better than the potential of like let's say you're let's say you're Detroit like you like you mentioned, Cruz is off the board, Langford is off the board. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't believe in Skeens. If they don't believe in Skeens, maybe they don't want to take a high school hitter in Walker Jenkins, and maybe they think the chase rates for Kyle Teal are just too high, mm -hmm. so they take Chase Davis. The amount of ammunition that they could pull in 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 the second round or comp round A or the third round, you know, it, 
it goes a long ways long term. I, I think the Tigers are close enough to competing now that they're not going to kick the can down the road. Can't believe I said that twice in 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, there's going to be some of that. Like there's going to be a pick that stuns everybody. Yeah, you mentioned the Pirates, uh, 2021, uh, taking Davis. Uh, in round two that year, they gave uh, $2.8 million to Anthony Solomito, the left-hander. We like him. Uh, we it. like his yeah. his long-term future. And that's when they got Bubba Chandler, the two-way kid. In the third round, they gave him $3 million bucks, a first-round talent. So essentially, got three first-round talents in three rounds because they went under slot at, uh, at number one. That gave him the and opportunity to do that. They got Braden Bishop in the 11th round and a lot of people had him a top 100 prospect in the draft i think they gave him a million bucks so um those dollars they they do keep on adding up and there's a lot of different ways to to utilize them as the draft goes on i, I will say um one last thing like uh, jacob like i i keep looking at jacob wilson and the floor of what that player is and the bloodlines I, I still think that's a guy that can sneak up and, and go a little bit higher than people think. Mm, interesting. Jacob Wilson, shortstop, right? Shortstop out of Grand Canyon. But 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 he doesn't stick, right? Like you were you're pretty sure he wasn't gonna stick, right? I was no, trying Jake, to I think Jacob I, I think Jacob Wilson at twenty seven years old might not play shortstop. Right. That's what <laughs> I Jacob you know Gonzalez I don't think Jacob Gonzalez will play shortstop. Uh, it's funny because back in the, the Tulowitzki draft, I'm dating myself. In the Tulowitzki draft, I was like, well, they're taking a guy who's going to play shortstop for five years and then he's going to move to third base. Boy, was I wrong. Great job by Tulowitzki. Uh, a healthy Tulowitzki played a really good shortstop for a really long time. Uh, he really would have impressive. been a Hall of Famer if he just stayed healthy. Ah, well, fell apart at, he yeah. fell apart at 29 or 30. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely on the trajectory. All right. Uh, Major League Baseball. Let's talk a little Major League Baseball before we go here for a couple of minutes. Um, the trade deadline is still a couple of months away. The draft is two months away. The trade deadline is two and a half months away. Uh, but it's always fun to talk about uh, who could be available, who should be available, which teams are going to be selling. Right now, it looks like, Joe, we're looking at the White Sox at 16 and 29 as we record this, Kansas City at 14 and 31 as we record this, Oakland at 10 and 35, Washington at 18 and 26, Colorado in 19 and 25. Those look like the only surefire sellers. We, I, I think Cincinnati's going to get to the point where they're selling. Um, maybe San Francisco as well. They're 20 and 23 uh, right now. I don't think San Diego's ever going to get to a point where they're sellers, no matter what their record is. But if we had to like take one team on each side of this, one team that is kind of the first team to flinch and go buy a player and who that team is that maybe they match up with. Are, are you, and basically this is a question of who are you pretty much sure is going to sell and they're, they're just not going to be able to convince their themselves, let alone their own fan base that they're still in it. And they're going to go out there and maybe be that first team to sell something to one of those contenders. Like the White Sox to me might hold on because they're a bigger market club and they don't want to pass that along. But does Kansas City feel that way? Does Oakland feel that way? Does Washington feel that way? Does Colorado feel that way? Yeah, Colorado is the one that I point to. Um, I, you know, Colorado is always fighting an uphill battle, having to face the Dodgers and the Giants and the Padres, and this year the Diamondbacks. Like y to see every one of those teams thirteen times, and then having to play every other division. Of course, I, I just don't see a, a situation with the Rockies' currently constructed roster where they're going to be able to survive. Or, or even be in a competitive position at the end of June. So 
I think they, you know, I think they could surprise some people and, and move a CJ Crone. CJ Crone is the guy that I've had circled for quite a while. He is, I believe he's a free agent after this year. There might be a team option involved there and it's a tiny contract. So there's going to be suitors. He's not having the best year, but I mean, CJ Crone is just raked and he's hit, you know, he's, he's been a home run bat for the better part of five, six, seven years now. I think there's a lot of teams that could use that sort of just offensive infusion in their in their lineup so if there's one team that i circle that actually has pieces to move that isn't oakland that isn't washington that isn't um you know the royals the rockies are probably the next but i want to throw one other team at you that nobody is talking about as a potential mover Mm -hmm. that that just throws in the towel early the san diego padres Mm -hmm. I just don't see that? it. Yeah, I just don't see it. I, I think they're the, the San Diego Padres baffle me, Joe. And, I, and I, I've talked about this a lot locally, but this is an organization that, first of all, AJ Preller is bad at his job. I'm sorry, AJ Preller is bad at his job. He's been there since 2015. He was hired before the 2014 season was over. He's been there since 2015. There were times when they had the best farm system basically ranked by everybody is the best farm system in baseball. And they've struggled to produce their own so much that it's taken ownership spending 300 plus million dollars on multiple players and then 280 on Xander Bogarts and, and a, and a weird extension for you Darvish. And it's like, I just don't think, I think this organization is too egotistical to sell at the deadline almost regardless of what their record is. Like if they're, if they're five games below 500, they're, they're probably sitting there thinking we just need to get hot. And to be honest with you, at that point, I really don't blame them. Like, I still think the right thing to do is be to sell off a couple of pieces like Blake Snell, Josh Hader, but I don't think they're going to do it. I think they're going to stay in this as long as possible. They might sell off a couple of weak pieces, lower pieces. I don't see them selling off Snell. I don't see them selling off Hader. And I certainly don't see them moving like a Jake Cronenworth or anything like that. I I just don't. I think this organization's uh, attitude and and their personality in the front office and above isn't going to allow them to do it. Otherwise, it would make perfect sense because I would have brought them up too if I didn't feel that way about their front office and their ownership group. So here's my thought process and and a reason that I think they could sell off a decent amount. They are currently, I think they're currently just like 16 million over the luxury tax and they were over it last year. And I think this is a good opportunity with some of these contracts that are aging to get at least for one year, mm-hmm. get under the the luxury tax threshold save your ownership some money, save the draft pick from dropping 10 spots. You know, there, there are, there are, you know, benefits from an ownership perspective where, you know, let's say you move a Blake Snell and save $7 million. You move a Josh Hader and save $5 million. I think there's some other guys in there too. Like, I don't think, you know, Nick Martinez, there were, there are so many weird, bad contracts on this roster. I don't, they're paying Eric Hosmer, $13 million to hit for the Cubs. I don't, right. do and they're doing it for several more years. <laughs> hey man, that's um, AJ Preller. I'm telling you, that's AJ Preller for you. Like, I don't really get anything that's going on there in San Diego, but here's the thing. Uh, according to roster resource via fan graphs, um, the projected, the estimated luxury tax payroll for the San Diego Padres just under 275. So they're forty-two oh, million dollars. Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm, I got them way lower. The, but it, this does make a little bit of sense here because that third threshold is two seventy-three. They could trade a player or two and get under the 273 at least. Getting under the 253, can't see that happening, and getting under the 233 is just not possible at this point, unless they're trading yes. Tatis and Manny Machado, and that doesn't make any sense. So at that point, you're saving 
the ownership 20% of that $60 million. Basically, you're saving ownership about 12 million bucks and whatever monies uh, you're able to move. So, and you might actually get a useful prospect or two you know, in return. Like Blake Snell can get you something, system, Josh Hader can get you something. Their farm system is in such a bad place after... I mean, Jackson Merrill is one of my favorite prospects in minor league Ethan baseball. Ethan Salas. They got that, a couple, they're pretty yeah, top heavy, though. Yeah. Ethan Salas... I mean, he does kind of look like a generational catcher, but yeah. he's 17. Let's not act like he's going to be here before 2027. Let's just let him get here on his own. That being said, like, yeah, some of these deals, like the Juan Soto deal, I, you're, you're going to owe Juan Soto, who is not performing $26 million this year. I am, or $26 million next year, maybe more. You might be able to get a team to trade for Juan Soto for a year and a half of Juan Soto right now. And, you know, maybe fix some problems i don't know they're, they are just the padres really? are in this so deep that i don't know you know moving some of these pieces and you might be getting one so kind of trending spot. up at the right time you know right leading up to them might make a lot of sense it's a really good point joe uh we'll talk more about the trade deadline in, in future weeks as we get a little closer uh draft trade deadline college stuff minor league stuff uh, we do a little bit of everything here on the FSS Plus podcast. Uh, Joe, appreciate it. We'll talk again uh, next week. I have no idea what we're going to do next week, but we'll always find something always falls in my lap. I think that's the best part uh, about this. Follow Joe at Joe, uh, M -I, excuse me, it's Joe Doyle at MILB. That's at Joe Doyle MILB. I'll get it right one of these times. I'm at Prospect <laughs> Insider. Follow FSS Plus at FSS underscore plus. We'll talk to you next week. So just chill to the next episode.